Imagine living in the state of New Hampshire sometime at the end of the 19th century. You go out to do some grocery shopping. Money is a little tight this month, so instead of getting butter, you opt for the more inexpensive margarine. You take your shopping home, cut your bread, and open the lid of the margarine container to find a shiny pink mass. Not exactly what you expected, and certainly not something you would like to put on your bread. You suspect that you have gotten a bad batch, and so you ask your neighbor, who confirms that their margarine is pink as well. The news travel across town, with everybody confirming that their tubs of fatty goodness are pink. The series of events occurred in New Hampshire in 1891. You might wonder, why would they make margarine pink? Wouldn't it hurt their sales? That doesn't make any sense. On top of this madness, rumor has it that the spread is supposedly mixed with tin cans, arsenic and stray cats, and that it has been linked to cases of clinical insanity. Are margarine manufacturers running a big April's Fool joke or what's going on? As it turned out, someone else was pulling the strings. Someone who wasn't happy to lose profits to a new product category. The Butter Lobby. You can also call them the Dairy Lobby, but it just sounds less dramatic than the Butter Lobby. <laughs> Join me for this episode to learn how politicians were buttered up to make margarine selling illegal. How the innocent spread ended up in some dirty smear campaigns. And how margarine changed colors from white to bright pink to how we know it today as buttery yellow. You're listening to Season 5 of Red to Green, History for the Future of Food. And this is the freaking third time that I'm recording my blabbering about pink margarine in the 19th century because of changes in the script and then tech issues. So I've been seriously questioning my life choices uh, and crumbling sanity <laughs> re-recording this. And I hope, I really hope you'll enjoy this episode. There was a lot of work put into it. <laughs> so stick around till the end to see how this story might relate to our present. Let's jump right in. You're listening to Red to Green, the audiobook style podcast on food tech and sustainability. Moving the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. In 1866, French Emperor Napoleon III considered that no war could be won without strong and healthy soldiers. As an energy source, the French army relied on nutritious butter, among other things. But butter had the disadvantage of being expensive and turning rancid quickly. This was especially worrisome in a time without cooling facilities. So that year the emperor offered a reward of 100,000 gold franc to anyone who could come up with a suitable cheap replacement. Three years later, the chemist Mèche Mouriez presented the solution, a mixture of beef fat, sulfate of soda, gastric juices of a pig, and a little cream, all heated and mixed into a butter-like substance. At first, he dubbed his invention Beurre Economique, the cheap butter, but then changed his mind. He renamed the mixture oleomargarine, from the Latin oleum, meaning beef fat, and the Greek margaron, meaning pearl, because of its pearly shine. That name was later shortened to margarine. 
Although Mage Mouriez's invention had a jelly texture, it approximated the most to the original taste, which won him Napoleon's prize. The product didn't take off, though. In 1871, Mèche Mouriez sold the patent to a Dutch company called Jurgens, which eventually became part of Unilever and is still one of the leading manufacturers of margarine. The Dutch realized that if they were hoping to sell their product as a butter substitute successfully, they had to improve the texture and fix the color, as margarine is naturally white. They began to dye it slightly yellow to match the pale yellowish color of butter. And this is how the war between butter and margarine began in the United States. Unlike in Europe, margarine was an immediate hit in the US when it arrived in the 1870s, especially with the poorer segments of the population. To the horror of the American dairy farmers, 37 companies started to produce margarine within the decade. This new product trend threatened their existing profits. That called the dairy industry into action. Thanks to its passionate lobbying, they buttered up the politicians to pass the Margarine Act in 1886. It was the first of a series of laws passing heavy taxes on margarine products. In some states, and also in Canada, the spread was banned. It was illegal to sell margarine. But in New Hampshire, the lobby couldn't manage to ban the product. Instead, the state came up with a more colorful idea. In 1891, a law was passed requiring margarine manufacturers to dye their product pink. Anyone who didn't comply could be fined $100, almost $3,000 today, or face two months in jail. And this is how you ended up with that shiny pink mass in your margarine container. As if the revolting color and the climbing prices were not enough to keep people hooked on butter, the dairy lobby started a smear campaign. Or should I say the butter lobby? <laughs> Speeches were made to defend sweet and wholesome butter, and rumors were spread about how margarine was produced. A 1911 edition of the Chicago Tribune pictured factories dropping tin cans, arsenic, and stray cats into the margarine mix. Dubious scientific reports hinted that margarine caused cancer and could possibly lead to insanity. The smear campaign seemed even more absurd when considering that back then margarine and butter weren't all that different. Both contained almost 80% fat from the same dairy animal and 20% water. After seven years of pink margarine, the Supreme Court of New Hampshire had enough. It struck down the pink laws by stating the obvious. Pink is not the color of oleomargarine in its natural state, and the unnatural color excites a prejudice up to the point of absolute refusal to purchase the product at any price. Duh! Well, one might argue that this was the only reason why these laws were passed in the first place. Though pink was not obligatory anymore, margarine producers were still not allowed to color their product yellow. Hey, have you been enjoying this episode so far? If you would think of just one person that may be interested in this topic, who comes to mind? You can click on the share button and send them a direct link. If you do this now, it maybe just takes 30 seconds. It's a small gesture, but helps us a lot. So we can keep producing future seasons that you can enjoy for free. Thank you for supporting Red to Green. Now back to the episode. Help for the producers came from an unexpected side. 
During the Great Depression, which was followed by food rationing in World War II, the popularity of margarine began to soar. As there was a shortage of animal fats, the producers began to use hydrogenated vegetable oils rather than animal fats for their products. Butter, on the other hand, became extremely rare. The hiking taxes on margarine were lifted in the 1950s due to the surge in popularity. A few years later, the artificial coloring laws were done away with and margarine started to be sold in butter-like shades. For the first time, margarine was on a level playing field with butter, except in Wisconsin, where yellow margarine was still banned until 1967. Nowadays, Americans eat an average of 5.6 pounds of butter yearly, as opposed to 3.5 pounds of margarine. The product has recently lost popularity again due to health concerns about trans fats and the rising preference for natural, unprocessed foods. The war between the two spreads is not over. Oh, and if you're wondering what became of Meige Mourier, he didn't really profit from his invention. Although he won Napoleon's prize, the poor guy died, well, poor in 1880. I guess it's because he sold his patent, maybe under not such good conditions and didn't profit from the actual sales of margarine. The main take-home message from this story is that legislation is not to be underestimated. In our third season on promoting alternative proteins, we covered Amendment 171. This vague amendment, if applied in Europe, would have had a wide range of implications. It could have prohibited oat milk manufacturers from calling their product oat milk or even explaining it as a milk substitute. Our interview guest Ronja Bertholdt said that within her team there was no consensus on whether the amendment would go through or not. Fortunately, the amendment didn't pass. If you want to find out more about this, you can check out our episode 3.9 on censoring dairy alternatives. According to Open Secrets, 12,000 lobbyists in Washington were officially registered to have actively lobbied in 2021. Well, the actual number is of course way higher. According to Lobby Control, there are an estimated 25,000 lobbyists in Brussels. With enormous leverage, the food industry is one of the strongest lobbying forces, if not the most decisive lobby. If you can make people hungry, you can move a lot. New technologies often encounter crossed arms on the consumer side, but also, and possibly even more importantly, from competitors. And legislation banning, restricting or disadvantaging new products is not something surprising and one of the biggest threats to novel foods. And there's an interesting theme here. Margarine shouldn't be yellow because then it would be confused with butter or with dairy. It cannot be called milk because then people would think that oat milk is real milk and then they wouldn't know what they're buying. And all of these things are supposedly for consumer education and to make sure people aren't confused and consumers are hopefully not that stupid. Of course, it's important to have clear nomenclature to make sure that people know what they're actually buying, but you don't need restricting legislature for that, usually. When we think about what should new companies, novel food companies do, it comes back to the question, how much are you putting up a fight with the existing industry head on and how much are you trying to befriend them? It reminds me of a report called Talking Trash that I mentioned in season two on plastic alternatives. The Talking Trash report showcases how big companies like Coca-Cola, PepsiCo and Danona are acting two-sided. 
On the front, they declare significant commitments, investing in projects to reduce plastic trash and join alliances for sustainability. Can you see them holding hands and dancing through a field of flowers? <laughs> This is what I just saw. Well, behind closed doors, it looks very different. They lobby against legislation that would tax or limit plastic use because it would endanger their profits. That's not because the whole organization is against change. In the end, it's just a pool of people. And there's also a lot of civil war going on within organizations. A few effective altruists in the sustainability department of a corporate or a few revolutionaries in the corporate venture arm doesn't mean the entire established company is up to having its profits taken away. In the case of margarine, What lifted a lot of the bans was urgency due to World War II, the urgency of declining resources meeting the challenge of feeding a population. And we can use that same argument for novel foods. According to a study by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, the FAO, meat consumption by 2050 could rise to twice as high in 2008. Maybe it isn't necessary to position a product like cultured meat as the end of animal agriculture. Yes, it sounds fantastic and bold, but it does create a lot of unnecessary ill will. What if SpaceX had shouted from all rooftops that they would put NASA out of business for good? while having to rely on NASA for contracts and corporations. While we still can and must point out that change is necessary, we must do so strategically. Don't bark at the wrong dogs while you are still a puppy. Thank you for listening. As always, I love to connect with listeners. So just drop me a line on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Schmidt. Marina, like the ocean, like the marine. And Schmidt, S-C-H. M-I-D-T. You can also find me by just typing in red to green on LinkedIn and finding me associated with it. As always, there's a whole bunch of people involved in creating this. So thanks to Katarina Tilch for doing ground research for this episode, to Lara Toyman for doing the editing and Celeste Gupta for doing audio editing. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable from red to green.